So I have a story for you guys that I've never told anyone before. That was manslaughter, not murder. That was no intent, girl. I mean, other than the fact that everybody's in love with Dylan O'Brien, including myself. That is Red Flag City, my dude. You have won the podcast, sir. Well done. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Will Wallace, and I'm joined by... Melissa Mullis. And Kate Colvin. Every week we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about season three, episode 20... Echo House. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at return to beacon hills at gmail.com this week's episode is entitled echo house it was written by jeff davis and directed by tim andrew in this episode the group learns that the injection deaton gave styles will only subdue the nikitsune for a few days styles has himself committed at Eichenhaus, a mental institution there he encounters morel and malia meanwhile scott allison lydia kira and the twins had to plan to steal a scroll that might hold the key to getting rid of the nigitsune without killing styles but derek learns that chris is willing to kill styles if it means ending the carnage as the others race against the clock the nigitsune gives styles a chilling ultimatum our favorite quote for this week is an exchange between styles and malia styles says you might not like me if you know any more Malia says, try to remember that I'm a were-coyote who murdered her own family. I won't judge. I promise. Were-coyote's bringing the snark. <laughs> One of our honorable mentions is between Oliver, Styles' roommate at Eichen House, and Styles. Oliver says, that's Hillary. She has OCD. That's Gary. He thinks he's Jesus Christ. Dan, also Jesus. That's Mary. Styles says, Mary Magdalene. Oliver says, no, she also thinks she's Jesus. You'd be surprised how many Jesuses we get. Don't f*** with the Jesus, as John Turturro says in The Big Lebowski. The next one is an exchange between Styles and Morel. Styles says, so when the Nogitsune takes over, you're going to kill me. Morel says, I'm going to do what I've always done. Maintain the balance. Styles says, okay, then I've missed our talks. Thanks for the illicit drugs. <laughs> so on brand for that family. Very. And finally, we have an exchange between Kincaid and Scott. Kincaid says, the scroll inside this prosthetic finger is worth three million. Scott says, give me the finger. You know what I mean. <laughs> oh, Scott. That's our true uh, alpha, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great, though. I like that. No, Scott, it's, it's cute. 
is a doofus. It's great. He's very heroic. He's very charming. He loves all his friends. He'll fight for them to the end, but he's also kind of a doofus. And it's, it's just, it's, kind of it's a, cute a and wonderful. Goof, a little yeah. goofball. When I was looking through, you had a lot of extra materials for the writing of this episode. And it seems like you guys committed to this joke early on, wanting to make sure it was in there. The episode begins with a content warning. There are mature themes in this episode. Stalinsky and Stiles pull up to Eichenhaus, the mental institution where Barrow was committed. Scott soon joins them and tries to talk them out of having Stiles committed there. Stalinsky plans to go to LA to meet with a specialist about frontotemporal dementia. While he's gone, Stiles has decided to commit himself. Scott worries that he can't help Stiles if he's in Eichenhaus, but Stiles believes he won't be able to hurt Scott while he's there. In fact, if the others can't find a cure, Stiles wants Scott to ensure he'll never get out of Eichenhaus. Okay, I don't totally get why Stiles decides to commit himself at Eichenhaus. We don't have much of a sense of what kind of institution this even is. To be honest, we, the writers, didn't have a full sense of Eichenhaus yet. Yeah, the rest of this discussion will have to go in the alpha section because it has to do with stuff that carries over into the next season. Inside, a staff member explains to Stiles that there are no calls, emails, or visitors allowed in the first 72 hours of a patient's stay. Stiles will be given a brief physical, and then in the morning, he'll be assessed by a staff psychologist, speak to a social worker, and attend group therapy. Stalinsky starts to panic when he realizes they've forgotten Stiles' pillow, without which he can't sleep. Yeah, I believe that's taken from Dylan O'Brien's real life. Apparently, he always travels with his pillow because he can't sleep without it. Stiles says it's fine and he can have someone bring his pillow tomorrow, but Stalinsky quickly becomes overwhelmed by the institution around him, which feels more like a prison than a psychiatric facility. He can't bear the thought of leaving Stiles there, especially now that they've realized he won't be able to get a good night's sleep. This is such a sweet and sad moment. I just have such a hard time believing Stolinsky would leave him there. He's like, at this point, I might prefer the Derek Hale's basement plan where you just get chained up in Derek Hale's basement. I heard some other teenagers in town have tried that. Is that still on the table? He was the king of the chessboard. I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> <laughs> Styles tells Stolinsky that he hasn't had a good night's sleep in weeks. He gives his dad a hug and goes with the staff member, leaving Stolinsky behind. It's such a sad shot when the camera's pulling away from him and he's getting smaller and smaller and he's the only person in frame. Very sad. Damn you, Tim Andrew, for making us feel feelings. <laughs> On the way to his room, Styles sees Malia in a hallway. Also a great shot. Two nearly symmetrical shots, almost back to back. But then after Styles sees Malia, the camera goes just a touch off kilter. It's great. This episode is really well filmed. I might be biased because it's so horror-ish, though. Continuing on, Styles catches sight of another patient up, up several flights of stairs from him. The patient seems to be making a noose out of a sheet while mumbling to himself. So we were actually talking over this part when we did our rewatch, but when I read the script, I realized something cool. The patient is saying, I'm the part of the bird that's not in the sky. I can swim in the ocean yet still remain dry. Do y'all know the answer to that riddle? So I didn't realize it was a riddle in the original draft because, yeah, we were talking over it and it's been a long time since my very original watch of it. But in the original draft of this episode, the nurse asked what the patient had meant and Styles tells her the answer to the riddle. So I do know it from reading that. Do you know it, Will? Is it a shadow? Yeah. Styles yells for someone to stop him, but the patient hangs himself. Other patients scream and gasp in horror. One of those patients is the Nagitsune. Yeah, one of the original ideas for the teaser included Styles crawls into his new bed. He closes his eyes. The Nikitsune is crouched over Styles in bed and saying, I'm in here with you. I love that. I think it would have been really cool to see. That would have been cool. Very like sleep paralysis demon. 
Deaton talks to Chris on the phone with Chris still at the sheriff's station. Deaton confirms that the plan went well and he was able to get the wolf lichen. The problem is that the lichen isn't a cure and will wear off in a few days. More unnecessary flashbacks. Chris asks whether it's true that the Oni won't go after Styles while the lichen is working. Deaton hopes this is true and Eichenhaus has an unusual history, so it might not be safe for the Oni there. I wish Deaton had explained this to Styles before Styles committed himself. It would make more sense for him to make the decision knowing that the 72-hour hold will probably coincide with the wolf lichen keeping the Nikitsune down, plus Eichenhaus having a history with supernaturals. Also, I don't think you guys end up using it, but I did see it in several of the drafts of Styles imagining seeing the Oni there while he's in Eichenhaus. Oh, interesting. But as far as I recall, he never does, right? I could see that being a little confusing because we know the Oni are corporeal. And the Nagitsune, like, I believe as far as we've seen up until this point, could theoretically not be. So we see, like, the Nagitsune with a group of patients and nobody's reacting to it. So it's like it's in Styles' brain type of thing. And maybe it would just be confusing. I don't know. What do y'all think? I think it was probably money that didn't need to be spent is my guess also that too seaton says they need to find a shugendo scroll the shugendo were japanese ascetic mystics and the scroll has information on exorcising a nogitsune the last person who purchased the scroll was kincaid katashi's right hand man with whom isaac clashed when they went to talk to katashi so it's likely katashi was the one who wanted the scroll yet it wasn't with katashi's effects and a paranoid like katashi would keep it close Luckily, Allison has a theory about where the scroll might be. Troubled by what he's seen, Styles tries to get the staff member to let him use a phone to no avail. She threatens him with their five-point restraint system, which has already been administered to Styles' roommate, Oliver. The actor was on the very short-lived sitcom The Real Neils. It was a cute show about a Catholic family whose younger son comes out as gay. He kind of looks like young Coach. Okay, that would have been so funny if he'd end up being Coach's son. Yeah. Or this is Greenberg, and he had to be committed after everything Coach has done to him. (laughs) Oliver says he heard the suicide from in here because of the echo. Something about the way Eichenhaus was built causes everything to echo eventually. That's why they call it Echo House. Oliver falls asleep, but Styles stays awake. He really can't sleep without his pillow. Oliver starts coughing and explains to Styles that he swallowed a bug the other day, and it feels like it's still in his throat. Red flag. Red flag. The next day, Oliver shows Styles around. Most of the people at Eichenhaus are okay, he says, and the violent ones are in the closed unit. Styles approaches a landline where a patient named Meredith is speaking urgently to someone. It's Maya Eshid in the house. That pushing on Styles when she's done talking is a great shot. I love it. Yes, he gives good concerned face, good mysterious what the hell's going on face. After she leaves, Styles realizes the phone is dead. There was no one on the other end of the line. Oliver isn't surprised. They turn the phones off for 24 hours after a suicide. They turn off the phones after a suicide? That is red flag city, my dude. Styles sees Malia again and approaches her, which earns him a punch in the face from Malia. The head orderly, Brunsky, tackles Malia to the ground and warns her that another incident will land her in the closed unit. Other orderlies tackle Styles to the ground. Through a grate, he can see down into the basement of Eichenhaus and recognizes it as the place he dreamt about when he had sleepwalked to the root cellar. Morel comes in and tells the orderlies to let Styles go. I also feel like it would have made more sense for someone to go in with Styles. And I'm just, you know, spitballing here. Derek? You can go ahead and send me that fic anytime. At the sheriff's station, Derek and Chris sit in cells. 
Derek uses his super hearing to get an update. They're moving the evidence related to the Katashi case. This was what was written originally during a breakdown of the story. Argent and Derek enter a holding cell in lockup, possibly a cell on location at Iken. Argent says, you want top bunk? Derek says, I don't like heights. They're being charged for Katashi's murder and being held for arraignment over the weekend. Derek wants out, but Argent says they have to play this by the book. It's not going to help either of them if they're both fugitives. Argent gets a visit from his lawyer, but it's not his lawyer, it's an advanced man, Severo, from the Hunters, with a warning. You've broken the code, you're on your own. Later, they're released when the evidence goes missing. Hey, you want the top bunk? No, I'm a bottom. What? <laughs> I uh, feel like there's no way he'd tell Argent anything that he's not a fan of. That's true. Absolutely. I thought it was an interesting detail. I felt like it was very unlike Derek to tell Argent something that he is scared of. Because I mean... Oh, I took that as a sarcastic line. I mean, if he doesn't like heights, why is he doing backflips off giant buildings? <laughs> Derek brings up the fact that people are now dead because of Styles being possessed. With Jackson being the Kanama, they got lucky. What happens if they don't get lucky this time? Chris tells a story about berserkers. Germanic warriors who wore bearskins and became ruthless animals. He once had to put down a teenage boy who had become one. The boy he once had been was gone by then, and Chris felt no remorse. Derek asks if Chris would feel remorse putting down Styles. Chris says he would, but not for putting down an Agitsune. Derek seems emotional here. That was pretty emotional by Derek's standards. Yeah. I know that people ship Derek and Chris, and I get why, but Derek just feels so emotionally closer to the level of styles than chris yeah he is emotionally one generation down during group therapy morel asks malia and styles to talk about guilt styles sees a patient talking to the negatsune in a white coat his hallucinations are getting more frequent morel notices styles scratching at the back of his neck and sees marks on his skin she tells the group to take a break and bring styles to talk to her privately the marks on Styles' neck continue down his back. It's called a Lichtenberg figure, and it appears on people who have been struck by lightning. I am quite proud of coming up with this. I don't even remember how I found it, but I am very proud. Yeah, it's it's a great visual for that. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Morel explains that the marks are from the wolf lichen poisoning. When they fade, the Nogitsune will return. She gives Styles amphetamines to keep him awake because he's vulnerable to the Nogitsune when he's asleep. I also have meth here. I think it would have been really interesting to see like micro naps like they did in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, which was yeah. the only interesting thing about that remake. It yeah. was absolutely the only interesting thing about that remake, which I believe is what I said in my review for it. If Styles' friends can't find a cure by the time the wolf lichen wears off, Morel will give him a lethal injection to get rid of the Nigitsune and maintain the balance. Styles tries to find a way to get into the basement in case it holds clues about the Nagitsune. The door to the basement is locked. Oliver finds him and explains that only Brunsky has the key to this door. He has keys to everything. Styles needs to find a way to trick Brunsky out of his keys. Meanwhile, Scott and the twins join Allison and Lydia at Allison's apartment to plan a heist to get the Katashi evidence from the armored car before it can reach federal lockup. You guys actually had a doc that I'm pretty sure was just called Heist Ideas. <laughs> and I included one of those here. One of the ideas was, at the sheriff's station, Kira arrives, pretends to be a grieving next of kin. She wants the finger. They give it to her. She and Scott head to Derek's loft to meet the others. At Derek's loft, Scott and Kira have a moment. Door opens. Kincaid tosses an unconscious parish on the ground. Kincaid says, you have something I want. Scott says, who the hell are you? The twins appear and say, Kincaid. Then, werewolf fight. Yeah, in two different versions of it, 
the twins already knew who Kincaid was. They had had previous runs in with him. Interesting. Mm. Uh, I like the idea, though, that Kincaid just brought Parrish with him. Like, how many blocks was he carrying his unconscious body for to throw him in there? <laughs> and why? Because it's dramatic when you throw a body to the ground. Okay. <laughs> Styles goes into the boys' bathroom and finds Malia showering there because, apparently, the water is hotter than in the girls' bathroom. He tries not to stare. Up that there aren't divided stalls. Once Malia's finished showering, Styles asks why she punched him. After all, they did save her life. Malia thanks him for invading her home, putting her on the run, and turning her back to humans so she can look at her father every day and try to figure out how to explain that she's the one who killed their family on a full moon. Well, she's mastered sarcasm in that time she's been out. <laughs> maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Do you think her dad took her to the mall to get her ears pierced? Because they're pierced. Well, no one knows that the coyote had earrings on the entire time. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, like that she had pierced ears when the accident happened. And, you know, she tore her clothes off when she shifted into a coyote, but she still had the earrings in. That would have been funny. Styles says they were just trying to help, but Malia wants to be changed back. Styles thinks that he can help with that. In exchange, he wants Malia to help him get Brunsky's keys. At the Argent department, Lydia and Allison try to explain the plan to the boys. None of them knows what the armored car's route is going to be, so they need to get one of Argent's tracking devices on it. I appreciate that Lydia said none of us knows. That's grammatically correct, but not what people typically say. Voice sounds really raspy here. Is that just me, or...? I noticed that too. I did. This was a season where you guys were having her do a lot of screaming. Because I remember Jeff telling the story about how like for a while she kept insisting on like just doing it until finally he was like, no, you're going to destroy your vocal cords. We'll play a recording of it. Mm -hmm. Aiden keeps assuming that he and Ethan are going to attack the car's driver. But actually the plan is for them to get a GPS device on the car before it leaves the station. Then when it gets to a designated point, Ethan and Aiden will be in the middle of the road with their bikes, looking like they got into an accident. When the driver gets out to help, they'll distract him, so Scott can use his super strength to break into the back of the car and steal Katashi's silver finger prosthetic. I never liked the silver finger we got. We tried to get a whole finger, whereas the one we ended up using was just from the knuckle. It does fit better in the story though, right? Because Katashi said the idea was that you could still hold a katana, but without the knuckle, you couldn't get a proper grip on it. Yeah, it was correct. It's just, for me, the visual isn't as interesting. Ah. Stolinsky can't help the group with this heist because if they get caught, then that'd be the sheriff who's still under investigation, tampering with federal evidence. With Argent in jail for murder and Styles losing a fight against the Nagitsune, they need to find a way to pull this off. Derek is also in jail for murder, but shrug emoji, I guess. <laughs> One of the original drafts threw out the idea that the episode would start with the sheriff being suspended and Melissa being fired. What? I don't know what she would have been fired for, but Derek and Chris are in jail for murder. Uh, yeah. The sheriff is suspended and then Melissa's fired. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, we're getting towards the end of the second act of this season. So like, you know, putting everyone kind of on the back foot with... Makes sense, but... They can't fire her. She keeps that place running. Exactly. There would then be no more doctors. And yeah, what are they going to do? You seem to intimately know all of these people coming in here with these weird wounds. We're just wondering if you're attracting them. We're going to fire you for a bit, see if uh, they slow down. Yeah, were there plans for on what grounds they would have fired her? I'm sure it probably would have been dealing with something with styles and medical records and, and stuff like that, or getting styles like into like MRIs and stuff. It would have been styles related, I assume, like her, you know, cutting corners and because she's always like, well, I've got a key card. Pick. 
you know, and stuff like that. So I that's think probably went where that it would have been. was on the up and up. No, it yeah, was. I was going to say. No, that... it was. I mean, obviously we went in a very different rally. None of this. This doesn't happen, you know, but it would have had to have been something like that. Caused by the no good tonight situation. Exactly. Oliver and Malia stage a fight so that Malia can grab Brunsky's keys and hand them over to Styles. with Oliver yelling that Malia had said they're going to drill a hole in his head. Note the trepanation reference here. Chris is told his lawyer's here to talk to him, but instead he finds Araya Calavera, the head of the Mexican hunting family. Styles tries to use Brunsky's keys to get into the basement, but he can't find a key that fits the lock. Brunsky appears and tells him that even he doesn't have that key. He drags Styles away and into the quiet room. Brunsky also finds the amphetamines in Styles' pocket and asks where he got them. Styles says he got them from a vending machine. Brunsky says he loves the sarcastic ones. Ah, uh, that's so creepy. Yeah, Aaron Hendry is so good in this episode. Really disturbing. It's the only episode where he plays both Brunsky and the Nogitsune. So that's fun. He brings various and correct levels of creepy to each performance. So mm-hmm. it's good. He's very, very good. Brunsky tells the other orderlies to give Styles a dose of Haldol, a sedative. It knocks him out. Kira tells Scott that she wants to help, and she's been practicing with a katana. She's really good with it, although she does almost slash Scott when she takes it out of her bag. Though he had been concerned for her safety, seeing Kira wield the katana convinces him that she should come with them on the heist. Oh man, it would have been really funny if Scott jumped back and there was just like a slice through his shirt. <laughs> I'm gonna be like, I've just watched Kill Bill like 20 times. I've got this. Styles finds himself trapped inside a locker. He yells to be let out, only to have the Nagitsune demand to be let in. The Nagitsune screams at him, and Styles screams in fear, only to wake up on the floor of the quiet room with Malia comforting him. Malia had broken the lock on the door, and she also discovered that there's another way to the basement through the closed unit. At the sheriff's station, Allison checks out the armored car through the scope on her crossbow and tells Kira the coast is clear for her to put the tracking device on it. Uh, it's so fun that we get an Allison-Kira interaction in this episode. Are there Allison-Kira shippers? There's there every shipper. Yeah. As soon as Kira places the device, she has to hide from Parrish, who comes out of the station and approaches the car. He starts to get into the passenger seat when he sees that the driver has been attacked. Kincaid jumps out of the back of the car and knocks Parrish out. Inside the sheriff's station, Araya and Chris discuss the code. Araya believes that Victoria honored the code by committing suicide, while Chris believes she would have honored her daughter by staying alive. Allison trains her crossbow on Kincaid while Scott demands that Kincaid hand over Katashi's prosthetic. He's welcome to the briefcase with Katashi's $150,000 in it, but Kincaid says the scroll is worth $3 million. Damn, he has quite a voice. He does. Kira takes Kincaid by surprise, leaping off the top of the car, but Kincaid throws her off. Styles and Leah make their way into the basement of Eichen House. It's weird that we don't see the closed unit. I feel like that might have been in the original script and got cut out. I just assume it's a money thing with you guys. Didn't have the budget to build it. In the basement, Styles finds the Japanese kanji for self carved into the wall. Malia asks for more information, and Styles is hesitant, but she reminds him that she murdered her own family, so she won't judge. But actually, that was manslaughter, not murder. There was no intent, girl. But Kate, red coyotes don't have access to law and order. Solid point. Bum bum. <laughs> Allison, Scott, and Kira struggle in the fight against Kincaid, but then the twins join the fray. You're in trouble now. They're going to fist so hard. What? Kincaid's like, I'm sorry, am I supposed to be intimidated by that? Because all I feel is confused and vaguely aroused. In the basement of Eichenhaus, Styles and Malia find records of the institution's old ways, electroshock, ice baths, and trepanation. 
Okay, I don't actually believe that Malia could pronounce that word. Totally and agree. Definitely wouldn't know what it meant. Yeah, it, it feels like the show only acknowledges or deals with the fact that she was a coyote for eight years when it's convenient. But then when it's like, she totally knows the word trepanation. I'm like, okay, there's absolutely no way that's true. Because first of all, probably most people their age already wouldn't know the word trepanation. Then add in the fact that she's been a coyote for eight years. I find that shit unlikely. But Wait, are you saying that Teen Wolf was inconsistent? I do not believe this in the slightest. Ooh, sarcasm. That's original. All of our episodes are bulletproof. <laughs> Styles asks Malia to look at the marks on his back. To his horror, she tells him they're almost gone. Malia surprises Styles by kissing him. Since she was on her own for eight years, it's her first kiss. She didn't have any little, like, wear coyote smooches in the... <laughs> like, she didn't smooch any other coyotes out there. Okay. <laughs> She seems like the type to bite on the first kiss. I think that would have been great. Like she went in for the kiss and he's kind of into it. And then he's like, ow, shit. Then she pulls back and she's got her fangs out. And she's like, that was fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great. On Doctor Who, there was an episode where Saran Jones, who's brilliant, by the way, played the sentient anthropomorphized TARDIS. And she says, biting's excellent. It's like kissing, only there's a winner. That feels like a Malia sentiment. Yes, it does. That's great. I didn't know she was on an episode, I guess, of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. I love her. Tremendous in every role, yeah. including that one. Malia decides she wants to try out something else too. She takes her shirt off. That escalated quickly. I've been watching a lot of teen shows since turning back to human. According to the CW, this is what teens do. I've been a wear coyote for the last eight years, but my new media knowledge says this is how to do the sex. Side note, I don't believe in a million years that Leah would wear a lacy bra. She probably wouldn't wear bras at all. Yeah, I think it would have made sense if she had taken her shirt off as Styles is like, oh, wow, okay, this is happening. You're, okay, you're not into the bra thing. And she's like, oh, I tried one. It was terrible. Have you tried one? It's terrible. Do you know what underwire is? No, I'm not doing that. You do it if you want. The sex scene meets... No sense to me. Malia has been a coyote for the last eight years. Last eight years, guys. It's interesting to me that there are people who are uncomfortable with Steric, but not with Stalia. To me, that shows that you're really married to the age thing, but not to the concept that underpins it. The point of having an age of consent is to try to ensure that one party isn't taking advantage of the other due to a maturity differential. You can't legislate maturity, so we use age to quantify it the best we can. You could argue that Derek is more mature than Styles. I disagree, but you could argue it. But you have to admit that there's a very clear maturity difference between Styles and Malia because Malia has only lived eight years and a few weeks as a human. Back at the sheriff's station, Scott has to stop Aiden and Ethan from killing Kincaid. Leah interrupts their post-coital bliss when she has an idea. Nobody's sweaty or must. Yeah, her hair is perfect. Maybe it's been a while and she's had time to fix her hair? Oh, honey, no. That's not how long hair works. Trust, once you f*** things up with your long hair, dude, that's gonna be a whole ass ordeal. Yeah, you're probably gonna have to, like, shower again. You gotta reapply product. And she definitely had a curler. Would they let her have a curl in here? Probably not. Malia realizes that the space behind the Japanese kanji is hollow. They break down that part of the wall and find a body. Could that be the nogitsune? Malia also finds something in the pocket of the clothes on the body. 
a photograph. Styles resolves to get it to Scott, but before they can do anything else, Oliver appears and uses a stun gun on them. While Styles took Brunsky's keys, Oliver took the stun gun and howled all, which he also uses on Styles and Malia. I feel like Malia would have attacked him before he got a chance to stun her. Yeah, I think her fight or flight response would have kicked in immediately. I don't think that amount of voltage would have done anything to her. I mean, they have to use a cattle pod on Derek. I believe we've established that Derek has built up an immunity, right? True, but that's also what Allison used on Peter. Plus, Styles is even down for the count. He's stunned, but he's not unconscious. Anything that can't knock Styles out could probably barely slow down the supers. That amount probably would have just... Pissed her off. Yeah. Then you got an angry wear coyote on your hands. Not good. Oliver reminds Styles that they used to do trepanation at Eichenhaus. He plans to let the evil spirits out. As he says this, Oliver takes out a drill. Styles wakes up to find that Oliver has tied him and Malia to chairs using Eichenhaus's five-point restraint system. Then, Oliver coughs up some blood and a fly. Oliver approaches Styles with the drill, but the Nogitsune appears and tells him to start with Malia, who's still unconscious. Oliver has become the Renfield to the Nogitsune's Dracula. The Nogitsune offers Styles a choice. Let the Nogitsune into his head fully or let Malia die. Styles lets go. Before Oliver can drill into Malia's head, Styles, now the Nogitsune, gets out of their strengths, grabs the drill, and knocks Oliver out with it. Yeah! Malia wakes up and sees the new Styles. Oh, Styles, you just got so much hotter. What happened? Give me some evil sugar, baby. Um, (laughs) Scott brings the Shugendo scroll to Deaton, who translates it. The scroll says that one way of expelling an Agitsune is to change the body of the host by turning him into a werewolf, Scott suggests. Malia checks herself out of Eichenhaus. Morel tells her where to find Scott. Malia's eyes flash blue as she re-enters the rest of the world. The episode ends there. Oh, I love that final shot so much. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm not exactly sure why she's smiling, though. It's interesting that the Nogitsune lets her go. The Nogitsune is a spirit of its word. Not always. It's for up and down that it was really Styles when it was talking to Scott and the twins. Oh, yeah. Well, it had his fingers crossed behind his back. We just didn't see it. There you go. I buy it. I think it's just bone bias, as Kate likes to say. Bone bias is real. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section of Echo House. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the Alpha. I heard the Echo. What do you mean? It's this place. Something about the way that it was built. Everything echoes. Eventually. That's why they call it Echo House. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to jump over to our interview with Matt Shively, who played Oliver on Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Well, Matt, these are my co-hosts, Kate and Kalissa. Hi, Hi. nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. We are super excited to talk to you today. So shall we jump in? Let's do it. Fantastic. Well, Matt, how did you get into acting? It took me years uh, and years to convince my mother to allow me to do it. She was always afraid of the rejection and all that. And and still to this day, I'm 32 now, and she'll still tell you straight to your face that she would rather I work at the Taco Bell down the street. (laughs) Yeah, but I, I just I happened to convince her to let me go to whatever place we could find. I didn't know anybody in the industry and neither did she. So we ended up going to some company that I think was a little bit of a scam and 
spent like five thousand dollars on commercial classes but luckily because of that it led to like an agent workshop and that's how i found my first agent and from there it just kind of expanded and i i was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time until I finally got a the Nickelodeon show like two weeks before I graduated high school, which was great because I had zero plans of going to college. Uh, (laughs) And it's been a journey ever since. Perfect timing right there. Yeah, you're you're telling me. I was I was I was in the process of applying to that Taco Bell that was down the street from my mom. So it was uh, it was it was perfect timing. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, how did missing out on Taco Bell lead to Beacon Hills? Well, so Beacon Hills, it was so funny because all I had ever done was comedy leading up to that point. And when I had gotten that audition, I was like, I want to just do something totally different. Like, and the character description was kind of what it ended up being, but I just, I wanted to just go totally weird with it and different. And I had seen these casting directors before for different things. And so I was like, I'm just going to give them something they've never seen from me at least. And it ended up working out. So it was, it was a really cool audition process because it was like the moment I finished the scene in the audition, they were like, yes, that's it. (laughs) And I was like, cool. So it was like, that was the first like dramatic thing that I ever booked. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it ended up, it ended up working out. (laughs) That's awesome. That's fantastic. You said that you did something very different for that audition and he's such a fun, interesting character. Did you have inspirations for how you played him? Yeah. So I can't remember who was the breakdown. I don't think it was, but when I was in high school, my senior year of high school, we did the play Dracula and I wanted, I wanted to play Renfield so bad. And it was the same year that the dark Knight came out. So I was like, this is my Joker moment. And (laughs) I fortunately, unfortunately ended up getting a bigger role in it. And I didn't get that role. And I was like, damn, I always wanted to have like that crazy guy. And so when I went into this with the way that it had all, you know, broken down story-wise, I was like, oh, this is Renfield. Like this is that guy. So I kind of just used what I had done in my audition back in high school as like the kind of catapulting into this and being like, okay, this is that Renfield moment that you didn't get in high school. You get to do it now. And and so that my inspiration was very much like on the original Renfield character of like being like a you know a servant to Dracula but in this case it was not Dracula it was something else so that's super cool I love that that's really cool yeah and you yeah. still consumed a bug I still consumed a bug see it all <laughs> yeah. it all worked out as it should I wouldn't have gotten paid for it in high school so luckily I got paid for it this time around even even better makes everything yeah. better yeah so Echo House is one of the top 15 highest rated Teen Wolf episodes on IMDb what about that episode do you think resonated so much with viewers? First of all, I didn't know that until you guys told me that. So that's very cool uh, to to know. I mean, other than the fact that everybody's in love with Dylan O'Brien, including myself, for the demographic watching the show. And, you know, we had a couple scenes in like the therapy sessions and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. it was all kind of people that were supposed to be the same age as the demographic watching. And I think it was just kind of. First of all, a scary episode that had a lot of twists and turns, but it was also something that I think the audience could relate to a bit of like seeing these kids struggling with their own mental issues and things like that. So I think it was kind of a combination of all of that. And I I can't remember if it was or not, but I think, was it the first time that Styles hooked up with Shelly Hinnick's Mm -hmm. character? Yes. Right. So that probably had a big thing to do with it as well, because I know (laughs) that was like a long time coming. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it had a lot of different factors. That's still honestly like one of my favorite projects that I ever did. 
And I was before this was all set up, I was just talking to my manager recently and he was like, we need to get you back doing something like like you did in Teen Wolf. Like that was like my favorite acting I've seen from you. And I was like, yeah, see, like I, I just I think that there was just so much about that role that was a first time for me to do things like that, that like I maybe I'm part of the reason it's top 15 because I've watched it so many times. <laughs> hey, yeah, whatever it takes. Whatever does it, yeah. Yeah. Are there any actors from the show that you wish you could have shared scenes with? I love Tyler. I love Tyler Posey. I, I wish I could have done some scenes with Tyler. You know, I'm I, I like to work with as many actors as possible. So like I wish I could have had a, a little moment with everybody in the show, but I've always been a huge fan of Tyler's and that was that was kind of the thing where I was like, dang, I wish he could have just snuck in there for a couple couple seconds just so I could have seen him. Yeah, I think Tyler would have been my go to. Nice. Oh, that would have been really fun to see. Yeah, yeah. definitely fun. Yeah. Got all of our scenes. Were you aware of Teen Wolf before you were cast? I was. I remember it being a show that I wish I had auditioned for when it was first coming out. But I was I think I was on a Nickelodeon show at the time. And so I didn't really get that opportunity. But then I remember it being like MTV's first huge hit. Yeah. Uh, as far as scripted television goes. And it was kind of like at that time, all of my friends, we were all the same age as all those actors in the show and everybody wanted to be in this show. So it was like it was one of those like hot ones where if like if you ever got the audition for that show, it was like, OK, we got to nail this because we this is this is the this is the demo we need to get in on. And it also was just kind of just like a fun show in general that like somebody my age at that time would have just loved to be a part of. So. Probably a, a lot of the target demographic for Teen Wolf and for MTV in general were people who had just graduated from Nickelodeon demographic. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 The ones who were sick of watching people slip on banana peels and wanted <laughs> and wanted to see people transform into wolves. I think that was exactly the time. Yeah. 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 Do you have any fun memories from set that you'd like to share? So I have a story for you guys that I've never told anyone before. Oh, yes. And I'm and I might be like totally just tarnishing my reputation here, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. <laughs> yes. There's a, there's a scene in the episode where we have to distract the guards to get the keys. Mm -hmm. And I go psychotic and I'm on top of Shelly Hennig screaming at her. In the moment on the first take, I had never done anything like that. So I never put out that kind of aggression to somebody else and like being in the scene and doing that. I think she knows this. I've worked with her a couple times since, but she's never mentioned it to me. And I've always been too afraid to tell her myself. But the first take we did, I got on top and I started screaming and I put out so much pressure that I farted on her stomach. And I remember it happening and just knowing that there's no way she didn't just feel that ripple across her belly button. And I was like devastated because I was a huge fan of hers. And I was like, I can't believe this moment's happening. And I've just broken wind on you. But we didn't say anything about it. There was never any mention of it. And like I said, like ever since then, we've never we've never said anything about it. And I've always been like, one of these days I'm going to tell her. <laughs> But I figured I'd tell you guys first. Oh my hey, God. hey, yes, the Incredible. internet should know everything important yeah. that happens in your life. I'm exactly. telling other You're people. So, yeah, yes. I mean, I think that's the best story we've ever been told on this podcast. I, yeah. I think so. Right. I think so. Right. You've won the podcast, sir. Well yep. done. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> it was worth. It was worth the wait. Yeah, that was. Uh, that was still to this day probably like one of the most embarrassing moments I've ever had on set ever. That that hilariously, I'm the only one who knows about. <laughs> I know Shelly knows, but Shelly has never mentioned it. So I just, I just leave it alone. I let it happen. 
She's she's professional. She's she was yeah, right complete professional. Sure. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The odds that it's happened to her before are very high. I'm sure all a lot of actors have farted on other <laughs> actors on accident. And, you know, it's just something we roll with the punches and we move on. Absolutely, whatever you got to tell yourself. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh <God>. brutal, brutal. <laughs> Moving from one horror to another. I was going to uh, say, it's hard, to, it's hard to move on from this one. Yes, yes. So you, you've worked in a number of horror films and TV series like The Purge, Paranormal Activity, and Teen Wolf. Are you a fan of the horror genre? Growing up, my mom, I'm not sure why, but my mother let me watch. Like, I saw Scream 2 in theaters, which I believe I was eight or nine years old when that came out. Aww. And I remember watching Scream at home, like on repeat on a VHS, just rewind, started over. And I think I was like six or seven years old. But horror was always my favorite genre for a very, very long time. And it's funny because I've talked about horror before. And I'm like, the older films, like the horror films from the 70s, kind of 60s, 70s, like I look back at those and I don't see how they're scary. And I'm like, they don't really hold up. And I've gotten a lot of flack for that because I get it. Like they're classics. And like, I feel like in in the world that we were in then, it was something that nobody had ever seen before. But like watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you watch that movie back, like it's a very repetitive film. Like somebody goes into the house, they get chased out and killed. And then the next person goes into the house and gets chased out. And I remember watching that in my older years and just being like, I don't understand why this was such a big thing. But I remember like the sixth sense I went and saw three times in theaters with my mom. And I ended up having to like sleep in bed with her for three months because I was, I was so terrified, but like we just kept going back and seeing it. Like it was okay. (laughs) And there were other movies like the ring and white noise. And I always had like these weird experiences with them. When I went and saw the ring for the first time, I woke up in the middle of the night, the night after I saw it at 2 a.m. And for some reason, our landline just happened to be in my room and it was ringing at 2 a.m., which like everybody knew not to call the house past nine. So it being at 2 a.m. And I just immediately was like, oh, this is it. I'm going to die. And I answered it. <laughs> and and the person on the other line was like, Matthew. And I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah. And she was like, where's your mother? And I was like, oh. and it was my aunt. And she was just super drunk calling my mom. <laughs> but I was like, at the time, I was like 12 years old. And I was like, you don't understand. I just saw the ring tonight. You can't, You. this is not the time to get drunk and call this house for the first time ever. <laughs> but I always, I was always a huge fan of horror and like doing paranormal and things like that. Like it was such a cool experience to see how it's made behind the camera rather than just, you know, sitting there and watching it. And like with paranormal, it was so weird. By the time we were done with it, it was a 250 page script. Nobody knew what was going to be in it. We came back a week and a half before it went into theaters and like shot like 20 scenes. And all of those scenes are what ended up being the movie and the theater. So we shot for like three months only to reshoot like two weeks before it came out. And that's what the movie was. So it was like such a crazy crazy experience. Yeah. To see all that. And then it's such a fun experience, but it's so emotionally draining. That's why Teen Wolf, like all of those characters, like I can't imagine those 15, 16 hour days. I couldn't imagine playing Oliver every day of the week and just having to stay in those moments and and be emotional all the time because it is just so draining. But it also is like one of the more rewarding things because you're putting everything you have into it. Great answer. Yeah. So our next question is a fan question. 
Oliver is such an eccentric character that had a lot of potential for backstory if he had been around for more than one episode. Was there any details or motives that you used to get into character for this role or any backstory you came up with yourself for Oliver? I think I just have to go back to the Renfield thing. Just I think that was, yeah, that was like, that was my sole motivation going into it. And I remember having that thought already. And then the director that that week who directed that episode had brought that up and was like, you know, this is oh. kind of like a Dracula Renfield thing. And I was like, that's exactly what I was thinking. And it's like, you know, he doesn't want to be doing these things but he's under like he's under somebody else's control there's nothing you can do and it was so fun because it was the first time where I was actually being able to make real choices and like you know doing the whole like you know with the mouth and like making these different choices of like what his ticks are and who who he is and how much like he he's like he, this poor guy like if he was just a little bit more screwed on this wouldn't be an issue and like even with that first scene with Dylan O'Brien when he's introducing everybody to like the other, or him to the other people and the thing, it's like you feel for this character because he's a nice guy. He's a great guy. And so when he turns out to be, you know, part of the villain's master plan, it was like just this heartbreaking moment of like, oh, but him and mm-hmm. him and Styles could have had something. There could have been something there. But yeah, my motivation was very much just like the Renfield going into it with that and and trying to figure out what my version of that character would be. You mentioned doing quite a bit of comedy before this, and there is a little bit of comedy in the role too. Like the part that you were mentioning at the beginning where there's like, you'd be surprised how many Jesuses we have around here. Like it's very funny, but I mean, it's gallows humor. Like everyone's really tense and afraid of what's going to happen. And I think that plays into what you were saying that it's like, he seems like a a nice guy. He's trying to keep it light for Styles because it's his first day here. And yeah, so when you realize that he's being used as a pawn, it's kind of heartbreaking. Well, and that was the other thing. The other thing that I just loved about the character and also the opportunity was the fact that prior to doing that episode, I think all of my background was like Nickelodeon acting and doing things like that. And as a Nickelodeon or Disney actor, it's very difficult to kind of break out of that afterwards because Mm -hmm. cast and directors, producers, they have this very, they have a cloud over their head of what you can do. And they're like, oh, he's a broad actor. He's a loud actor. He's this thing. And so this was that role where it was like, I get to do the opposite of everything I've done, but also still get to keep some of that humor to show that like, I don't have to scream to be funny. I can be funny by just being a person. And so that way it was just such a rewarding moment to like be able to do that because of the fact that like I was so used to doing something else and I wanted to prove myself outside of it so badly. And they gave me that opportunity. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Who on the Teen Wolf set, cast or crew, would make the best alpha? Shelly. Shelly is the alpha. Shelly's the alpha in, in real life in everything she's ever been in, I I say Shelly. That woman, she's like the epitome of a boss-ass bitch. Like, she's my (laughs) favorite person ever, and she's she's one of the rare actors who can literally do drama and comedy at the same caliber at the same time. And so watching her doing that, like, I was always so intimidated by her because I was like, oh, my God, you just get it. Like, you just know what you're doing, and it comes with ease. She's quite awesome. She is a wonderful person, amazing actor. Yeah, you're the first one to pick her for that answer. Yeah, so, so another well, one. Every, everybody, everybody else is fools. They don't <laughs> so I was a huge fan of the real O'Neills, and I was so disappointed when it got canceled. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? That was my first experience into like ne- network television. And it was also my first experience acting as a family rather than as friends, because usually everything I had done before was like a group of friends, whereas this was very much about a family. I've been very, very fortunate to be a part of projects that have meaning and have 
a purpose. You know, with True Jackson, it was very much all about young girl empowerment and like you can be and do anything no matter who you are your skin color whatever it is like you can be the boss of you and then real o'neill's was very much you know for the lgbtq community it was such an uplifting thing for them to feel seen and especially mixing in the religious aspect of that it was like so many people have gone through that part of dealing with being a part of that community and being shunned for it because of a religion and so it was nice to be a part of that. And then now even with Lopez, it's like the the Latinx community, like being able to be a part of something that is so representative of them. And I always end up playing these characters, which I, I'm so thankful for, who support that. Where like with Real O'Neill's, I was playing the jock brother, which usually means he's probably going to be a dick about it and be yeah. like, oh, you're gay. That's not cool. Whereas like his character, it was the complete opposite. It was nothing but acceptance and love and support. And so that was such a nice thing because I also, my mother's brother was gay and and he was one of the testers for the AZT drug and everything like that. And he was one of the guinea pigs for that. And wow. his story is so good because his his partner would literally smuggle it all over the border from Mexico. He would oh, line God. up his cars, fully line up the doors of the cars and everything. And one time he got caught and they put him in jail and he called somebody who was close to the president. And like 10 minutes later, they let him out. They took him back to the car. And then they let him drive over the border with all of the stuff still there. Oh my God. So it was like, it was wow. just such a cool moment to be able to then be a representative for that community and, and kind of come full circle with that. So that was like, it was just a, it was just a great experience. And I got so close with those people and I, I got to work with some amazing actors and there was never a dull moment. It was awesome. Now I want to see like a movie about your uncle's story. I, yeah, oh, it's fantastic. I, oh my I've god, been, I've been cooking it up for years because I, I get my mom in these these places where all of a sudden she'll just kind of start telling me stories, and I'm like, hold on, hold on, I gotta write this down. <laughs> like it's it's just a beautiful, beautiful love story between these two guys, and like the fact that my my uncle was a nurse who was diagnosed with HIV, and his first thing was to go okay fine let's test everything on me and see what works and see what can happen i don't care what it does so incredible wow yeah your character is actually my favorite on the real Neils, exactly for that reason of like it was such a surprise to just have him the jock character be so supportive and maybe a little dumb about it about times but just like clearly so loving towards his brother and i just thought that was amazing to see on tv yeah i got very lucky with that how would you compare working on teen wolf to something like the Santa Clarita Diet or The Purge or even The Real O'Neill's. The difference I think was like with Teen Wolf and Purge and things like that, like a little more time goes into the, the cinematography of it all and like the setting up these beautiful shots and these like, you know, setting the tone and the lighting is all very important. Whereas, you know, Santa Clarita Diet and, and Real O'Neill's and stuff, it's like, it's a very formulaic thing that's already been made. And so nobody's really trying to reinvent the, the wheel as far as how it, things are being shot. The stories are different and, and there's a different tonal thing about the stories. But as far as, you know, the tone of what happens on set, everybody's just kind of there hanging out, having a good time. Whereas like with Purge, with with Paranormal, with Teen Wolf, it's like there are times where you're having a great time. And then it's like, no, now we got to get into it. Like this is now we're getting serious. And that was the hardest part because I, I really hit it off with Dylan O'Brien. And it was so weird to like 
be like making a new friend and then all of a sudden being like, okay, and now you got to smash me in the face with a wrench. Like it was, so it was like dealing with that and like being able to try to slip in and out of character. And I remember with Purge, like I had to do a crying scene. I'd never done that before. And it was so hard because it was like 6 a.m. And it was like, you're, that's the first thing up. All right, now cry. And so it's like, it's a totally different muscle that you have to be able to use in acting. And it's difficult when you're not doing it a lot. So it's like all of my dramatic or horror film things kind of were spaced out in a point where like, I didn't really have time to practice it. It was just kind of like, all right, let's hope for the best. You got to go in and just do everything you can. And so I would listen to music to like set the tone and try to get into this, some sort of headspace that would be darker than what I'm used to. Whereas Santa Clarita Diet, Real O'Neill is like, that's, that's like my safe space. That's where I can just kind of go have fun and not worry about whether I'm doing a good job or not, because like, this is what I think I was born to do is make people laugh. And so like, we're, this is great. And unless they tell me something different, I'm doing it right. The pressure is not nearly as bad on a on a sitcom or that kind of set and that kind of story whereas it's it's a lot more pressure and a lot more stress goes into doing the more dramatic things because like you want it to be right so bad makes sense yeah, yeah. definitely that's that's yeah. it's such an interesting i guess dichotomy between the two mm-hmm. so that's awesome yeah. so you've talked about your love of playing a renfield character but if you could be part of any tv show past or present what would it be i mean if i'm going just like straight off of like what comes to mind first succession is like up there because I just love how real everything is. I love, I love the improv aspect of it all. And like these people really, you're just kind of watching them and you're just there. And I love, I, I, I've done such broad work in, in my career and I'm still doing it and I love doing it. You know, a lot of times I feel like I'm not playing a real person. I feel like I'm playing a character and with things like succession, I'm like, these are real people. They are actors playing these people, but they're real. And it's very grounded and it's very, there's nobody stretching anything. You're just saying the words that are on the paper. But if I could do any show in general, it would be The Sopranos. I That would have been a great show to be on at any age, at any time. That was like, that was like the show that got me into wanting to be in dramas to begin with. Because I was like, yo, nice. every character is a badass and they're terrifying and they're not even doing anything. They're just sitting there breathing heavily. And I'm like, I'm in it. Good picks. Yeah, real good picks. If you could be any Teen Wolf creature, what would you be? I think I would just be a wolf. I I know that's probably a really boring answer, but like to me, I always thought they were just so badass and I loved the makeup and the effects that they did for them. And I was just like, I always wondered what I would look like like that. And so I think that was like when when I read that question, I was like that. I think that's just as as cliche of an answer as it may be. That's that's what I wanted. It's a good answer. Yeah. yeah. Other people have also said werewolves and yeah. kind of had the same thing. Like, I know it's boring, but if it were boring, there wouldn't be a teen wolf. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> so it's so cool that you got to be part of the 2017 Power Rangers movie. Were you a fan of that franchise growing up? Yes. And that was like a dream come true because it, at the time I knew career wise and also like with how I looked physically and all that, like I knew I never had a shot at being a Power Ranger then, but it was like the fact that I got to be a part of it at all, even if it was to just jerk off a bull and then go home, <laughs> was just an amazing time. And it was also during a time in my life where like, it was the first time I really experienced like what a hardworking actor does. Because I remember I was doing Real O'Neill's and they flew me out to do one day on Power Rangers. And the next day they flew me home to host this red carpet event for the Oscars. And then the next day I flew back to do another scene, which never made the movie or part of it didn't make the movie. 
And it was like all it was like this whirlwind of five days where I was going back and forth from Vancouver to LA, from Vancouver to LA to do different jobs. And I was like, whoa, this is the thing I always wanted to do. This was I always wanted to be like constantly moving. So it was just it was awesome to be a part of, especially a movie with that, you know, magnitude. That was a huge movie. And it was also a franchise that like between Power Rangers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I was like, if I can be a part of either of those, I, I'll be happy. For any Stranger Things fans out there, could you tell us a bit what it was like working with um, Dacre Montgomery? D- Dacre Montgomery. Another thing I've been fortunate with is like I've gotten to work with people at their very start. And that was the coolest thing was like when I did True Jackson, Justin Bieber was on the on the episode where like he had not blown up yet. And I just remember being like, hey, man are you ready? Like you're going to, you're going to be pretty big. And then like three weeks later, he was the biggest thing in the world. And so with Dacre, it was like, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time with him and it was just so cool to see like the wide eyed, like excitement of like, dude, you're playing the red Ranger in the power Rangers film. Like, what is that? And he's like, well, you know, I just got out of, and he has an Australian accent that I can't do, but you've just like gotten out of some school and like this kind of just all fell into place and it just happened. And it was just like, this is crazy. Your career is about to be huge. And so then watching him progress throughout the years has just been awesome because I'm like, ah, I was there like that first day of shooting. We we shot that scene. It was the first scene that was shot for the entire film. And so it was like I was there from the ground floor to see where he was starting and to know where he was going to go. And he was also just like the sweetest dude. Like he was like the nicest guy. And you could tell he was just he knew how fortunately what he was to be there and and he wasn't going to take it for granted and and so then to see him on stranger things and absolutely killing that role like that was i was like yeah that's the guy it's always great to hear someone's great off screen yes. not yes. just on screen yeah. yes sometimes sometimes it's rare but yes I, i've been fortunate <laughs> enough to where i've worked with a few very good ones as a fan of werewolves do you have a favorite werewolf movie i i want to say american werewolf in london just because that was, I think, the first that, and there was another movie called The Howling that I watched when yes. I was a kid. Will like, loves yes. The Howling. You're my favorite, you're my favorite werewolf. werewolf movie. I love it. Okay, so, so again, I'm pretty sure I watched that at six years old. Your and mom. Rem- oh my god, that movie is rough. She, listen, in she prepared me. She prepared me for the real world because I've always looked at horror. Like I, I've had so many friends be like, "Why do you like horror? Like how can you watch that?" I'm like, "Because somebody's more stressed out than I am in the real world. I like to watch somebody <laughs> who's going through a much worse situation than I am in real life. And even if for those two hours I lose it, at least I get to go. Okay, well, at least you're dealing with it, not me." And I just like I'm glad my mom let me see those things because I think it helped me just kind of mature quicker in a way. It probably wasn't good for me exactly, but I think that it it helped. But I remember watching The Howling at like six years old and being absolutely petrified of it. But yeah, I think like between American Werewolf in London and and The Howling, I think those were because they were like the first ones I saw. Those were probably the ones that stuck with me the most. I was also a kid who watched like horror movies way too young. Like I loved Macaulay Culkin. So my aunt rented The Good Son when I was like eight. And so <laughs> it was just, yeah, Dark. an exorcist Dark. at like that 11. Such a disturbing film. Holds up well. <laughs> yeah. So we have another fan question and it goes back to something you've touched on of working with um, actors before they had their huge breakout. So she said that almost all of your scenes are opposite Dylan O'Brien, who had yet to branch out into his breakout role in Maze Runner and was only starting to 
his most iconic character arc on Teen Wolf at the time you were on. Do you remember any moment from filming with him that left you impressed or hinted at what he was going to do for the rest of the season as Boyd Styles? So the interesting thing with him was him and I were kind of not similar actors, but we were in a we were in kind of a similar bunch. And he had been doing this show for a while and I had only known comedy. So this was like my first experience on a set like this. And sometimes actors can be rude and kind of not chill to be around. And especially on a drama set, it's that way. But I remember my first impression of him being like, oh, this is like the nicest dude I've ever met. And a lot of times with like when you're when you're a regular on the show and you're dealing with a guest star who's only there for a couple of days, like you don't speak to them much. You just kind of go about your day because you're busy. You're doing your thing. But he was so gracious. And like any chance he saw me by myself, he would just right there on me. And then it was also just my first time watching a peer kind of being in charge of himself on a set. And it gave me a lot of confidence leading into other sets of like. I always had this thought of like, oh, I'm so lucky to be here. And through all of this, I learned like, yes, I'm very lucky to be here, but they're just as lucky to have me. He had this bravado about him of like, you knew he was going to be a star because he just like, he knew what he was doing. He also knew that he was the actor and everybody else on this set is working harder than you are. Because as an actor, if even if you're working a 15 hour day, if you count working between action and cut, you're really only working for about 45 minutes of that 15 hours. Whereas the grips, the lighting department, the writers, the producers, they are all sitting there at all times doing their job. And that's like the times I've met actors who you can tell are just fully taking this for granted and don't want to be there and don't want to memorize their lines. All this, it's always stumped me because I'm just like, you're so lucky to be here. And yeah, we're lucky to have you, but like, don't make us regret it. Like you literally like this is everybody else is working harder than you are. All the least you can do is memorize a line. And I just remember that was my first experience with a peer where I was like, see, okay, this is the guy you need to be like when you're on sets because this guy gets it. And he was just, he was just such a cool, nice, gracious person, even though I was only there for, I think three, four days. It's incredibly interesting. Yeah. That's wonderful to hear. That's awesome to hear. Well, Matt, are there any upcoming projects you can tell us about? Other than Lopez vs. Lopez, which is on NBC now, we have our season finale uh, coming out on Tuesday, and we're waiting to hear on a second season. I did the first episode of a show that was called Bad Monkey for Apple Plus uh, with Vince Vaughn. It was uh, created by Bill Lawrence, who did Scrubs and Ted Lasso and all that. I had done a pilot with him a long time ago, and he called me up one day and just was like, come out to the Florida Keys and shoot this one day on the show. and. I think that's going to come out this summer. So nice. if I made so, the cut, yeah. you'll see me in that. But other than that, I've been, I, we literally just wrapped our first season on Lopez last week. So it's like, I'm, I wow, finally okay. have, yeah, I finally am uh, able to come up for air for a second. So I'm, I'm going to take a trip or something. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. yeah. You should. Well, yeah. well, it'll be well earned. Well earned. Treat yourself. Yeah. 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 Treat Thank yourself. You. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, Matt, this has been an absolute pleasure getting yes. the chance to talk to you about a show we all love and an episode that many people love. It's just wonderful. It's wonderful getting to talk to you. Yes. Well, I really appreciate we got this worked out and I'm, I'm glad I did it. And I, it's been very nice meeting you and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for speaking yeah. with us. Thank you so much for joining us. You. Of course. We had a great time talking with Matt, but now it's back to spoilers. So one of the earliest ideas for this episode, there was the idea that 
Brayden might be in Icon House 2. Do you remember anything about this, Will? I do not, but I believe that would have been in place of Morel saying, I'm going to inject you with something to kill you. If Brayden had been there, I think Brayden would have been there as the person who's going to kill Styles. That's the only reason I think of actually putting her in Icon House. Hmm. Why else would a mercenary be there with someone who's potentially very dangerous? It's like, oh, to shoot him in the head. Yeah, I wasn't sure why she'd be there. She'd be like undercover, like committing herself as a patient or as she would have been pretending to work there. Yeah, something like that. Or yeah, she could have been a nurse or something. Yeah. Even this early in the show, we knew that there was weirdness in Icon House. We had this idea that there would be crows with glowing eyes and they would be like Icon House's security, even though uh, we wouldn't come back to that until a little bit later in the show. Actually, much later in the show. It would have been, I think, season five when we would have actually said what those crows with the glowing eyes were. Speaking of Icon House, Styles' decision to get committed there doesn't make sense to me. Why does he think Icon House is the best place for him? I'm wondering if it's a thing where the writers knew that it was going to be a place specifically for containing supernatural creatures, but unfortunately the audience doesn't know that yet, and neither does Styles, so it does make that conclusion seem a little hasty on Styles' part. Yeah, it feels like an assumption has been made, but there's no reason for the characters to make that assumption. I'm thinking maybe he sees it as a facility that's like a prison, while also being a medical facility. But if you're bringing the medical aspect of Styles' case into it, that doesn't make sense either. Yes, Icon House is a psychiatric facility, but it's not a specialized neurological facility. Stolinsky thinks Styles has an aggressive form of dementia. That's not something a psychiatric facility is really equipped to handle. I think Stolinsky is the only one who believes this could be a medical condition. Okay, but your argument is that part of the reason Styles chose the place is because they have medical personnel, but that's not really applicable if it's not a medical problem. Canonically speaking, the only explanation we get for this is Styles's. He believes that he can't get out and hurt people if he's in Eichenhaus. That's all we're told. And he doesn't explain why he believes that's the case. What makes him think that Naked Snake couldn't scheme its way out of Eichenhaus? It's not Azkaban. <laughs> exactly. And this is so elaborate too. His father's the sheriff. Lock him in a cell. They know the sheriff is traveling and they know Styles has been sleepwalking into dangerous situations. They could say it's for his own safety. I think that would be risky for the sheriff though, because that could be construed as misallocation of police resources and he's facing down a possible impeachment. Okay, that's fair. I mean, Styles has now kind of become a runaway, but I could see that. You know what I think would have helped this is if they had said, we're choosing this place because not only does it have heavy duty locks, but this is also where Morel works. She's aware of the situation, so Styles can be somewhat locked away, but also still under surveillance by someone who knows about his supernatural problem. Maybe she could even administer more of the wolf lichen to buy them more time, but we don't get anything to indicate that Styles had any idea she was working there. He seems surprised to see her. Absolutely. And Deaton only did take a small amount from the garden of that wolf lichen. And that's stupid. I commented on that at the time. Did I not? Did I not say, Deaton, there's a big ass growth of wolf lichen in this garden. Why are you just clipping a little tasty sampler? You did. Yeah, it just feels like there are other options for how this could have been done, where it would have made more sense. Hell, they could even send him to Derek's loft to be chained up. You can send me that fic anytime you want to. <laughs> well, they do have the closed unit for the criminally insane, like Barbara was, so they definitely have parts of the facility that are more secure than other psychiatric institutions might be. 
Yeah, I really find it hard to believe that they'd have maladjusted teenagers under the same roof as teenager murderers, even if the latter are in a different unit. But even if you buy into that, the problem with using that line of thinking to explain Styles' logic is that Styles isn't being committed to the closed unit. He's like on the same level as Malia, someone who's just a regular, quote, troubled teen. Okay, okay. You're absolutely right. I will admit this is the one mistake we ever made on Teen Wolf. <laughs> oh. Nice. From here on out, it is smooth sailing. I also think it's strange that Malia just like walks out because she's a minor too. Stolinski had assigned Styles into there to commit him. Well, like Styles admitted himself. Like he Stolinski had to sign off. It just seems like, you know, you'd also need the parent to sign them out since a parent has to sign them in. Yes, but I mean, that's not as cool to watch. No, I'm just saying, like, I mean... <laughs> That, that you know like i mean yeah. her dad could still be there next to her when she walks out there's something oh it's way less cool as there's another person in the scene i agree with all of that but i think like many instances in teen wolf we chose what looked cool over what probably would happen they're saying you can still cut to her walking out yeah just, i i, I just feel like all that all that behind her no i i just like the stuff of being signed out and all that i mean that would just get me for time you know, yeah, so it's just like, I mean, time. why there's no point even having that in there when, you know, when you get into editing and Gabe turns around and says, well, our episode is 59 minutes long. It's like, okay, well, you know, that bit at the end with the paperwork gone, <laughs> you know, just cut to her walking downstairs in slow motion. Actually, in one of the earlier drafts, Claudia had been in Eichenhaus whenever she what? first yeah. when she first started getting sick, they committed her to Eichenhaus. I don't know if this just was like a personality change or what. But yeah, she was in Eichenhaus. There's actually a scene that was in the original draft of the Nikitsune says, you want her to leave here alive? Do you want to leave Styles? People can walk out of this place. Styles says, let her go, please. They're talking about Malia. Mm -hmm. Oliver moves the drill bit to Malia's forehead. The Nikitsune says, your mother walked out, didn't she? How long was she here, Styles? Styles says, two weeks. For two weeks when it first started to hit her. Flashback, a dark-haired woman speaks with a teenage girl who looks distraught about something. The woman notices Styles as he walks in with his father. She gives him a welcoming smile. The Nick Gitsune says, did it feel like she was still here when we walked in? Flashback, Styles' gaze wanders to the hall where he spots the dark-haired woman he saw before speaking to another patient. The two laugh. She notices Styles staring and gives that same warm smile. He looks away. A hand rests on Styles' shoulder. Leaning down, Claudia Stolinski gently kisses Styles on the forehead, then steps away, a blur receding into the shadows. Styles says, she was here, but when she left, she was someone else. Whoa. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. Claudia was always like this spirit. It's like, how how are we going to get to her? Like on the show? Because I remember vaguely this, but it wasn't until reading this bit of the script that I remembered it. Because we cast Claudia Stalinsky before we actually saw her on the show in season six. Because a, a friend of Ian Stokes's was cast. And I have a picture of her and Ian in the writer's trailer together. Because she was cast. We, we must have shot stuff because she's in, in, I guess, wardrobe, but we cut it all. And then we ended up recasting the role when that whole storyline came up with Styles being erased. We were always trying to figure out how are we getting to Claudia? Because we knew at some point, we didn't know she would appear in the show because like that whole storyline in season six, that's because of DOB's accident. If that hadn't happened, I don't think we ever might have cast a Claudia Stolinski, you know, because like the storyline with the Wild Hunt was going to be different, you know? And then it was when DOB was in his accident that we were like, we have to reshape the season. 
And then it was like, well, Stolinski needs to have somebody. It's like, here we go. <laughs> Here's how we'll deal with that. I mean, that's where Claudia came from, but we'll get to that in a couple of years. Yeah, I just thought it would have been really interesting to find out that she had also been in Eichenhaus. Oh, so yeah. It would definitely make me think there's no way in hell Stolinski would have left Styles. Is there? Oh, that's yeah. What I was yeah. thinking too. It's already hard enough to believe but at least we do get that scene in the episode where styles is really insistent and Stalinsky's trying to convince him to leave yeah i really feel like if there were also the memories of claudia having gone there i just feel like it would have gone from unlikely to just impossible to believe yeah yeah also in the original draft melissa had a scene she's absent in this episode but um <sighs> she had a scene with would you like to read out will as you yeah Two copies of an MRI lie on the kitchen table in front of Stalinsky. Confused, he glances to Melissa. Stalinsky says, sorry, I just spent most of the day in the car to see a specialist who told me he couldn't tell me anything. So I'm not entirely sure what you're telling me. Melissa replies, first, I'm telling you I'm no specialist, but I've read up on this disease. If Styles has it, then it's the fastest progression of frontotemporal dementia in recorded history. Okay, Stalinsky says. Melissa continues, and there's this. I compared your wife Claudia's scan to Styles's. They're not just similar, they're exactly the same, like a photocopy. How's that possible, Stolinsky asks. It's not, Melissa says. So what if this isn't real? Scott says that Agitsune is a trickster. What if it's just making us think Styles has this disease? Stolinsky says, what if it's playing a trick? Stolinsky looks down to the MRIs printed on transparency. He places one over the other. The pictures match perfectly. I think this is really cool. And but this is like one of the things that I wish was in the episode more because from the previous episode or the episode of the hospital, it's like they know something is happening to Styles that's not his brain. Like they know for 100% certainty it is not this disease. Well, I thought maybe Stalinsky thought that they were coinciding that maybe Styles had a disease that made him vulnerable to the Nogitsune. Or that, or that. I wish that had been verbalized. Stolinsky doesn't really fight. Like he fights at the beginning of this episode, but I feel like no one's bringing up the Nogitsune. Granted, they're around other people, but still in the car. This to be like, we're dealing with a trickster. Like we all know this because we're all on that text thread that's like a <laughs> billion texts long. You know, and no one's Peter bringing needs that. To stop sending selfies, guys. Yes, yes, Let's just exactly. Him. But no, no one brings that up. You know, like they're really treating this as if it's this disease, like if it's a real mental thing. And it's, who who's treating it this way? Well, I mean, I I feel like Stalinsky is. Stalinsky's the only one, though. I know. Everybody but else is like, we know this is the. I know, and it just feels weird. It feels weird oh. to me that, granted, he's a father and he's going through all this stuff, and who knows how how grief and trauma affect people in the way in the things they latch onto, and and you know, so all those things. But it's just like we know it's not that, <laughs> or it's like that you have this thing, and that's what let the niggas in it. You know, I wish that I wish he had said that. I wish if that one line had been in there, I'd be totally fine. Okay. No, nobody's really bringing that up. Because I was going to say, technically speaking, they don't know with 100% certainty that he doesn't have frontotemporal dementia. They know with 100% certainty that he does have a nogitsune. And that's not necessarily the same thing. That's because true. Because I get the impression that Stalinsky thinks these two things are coinciding. I can see that as well. I just wish it had been verbalized. I wish he had just said, what if you having this thing let him in? That if you yeah. didn't have it, he, he would have passed you by. Because that's interesting. You know, that's, or that's interesting. Even just setting aside that that would be 
why the Nogitsune chose him. If Stalinsky thinks they're coinciding, it makes sense that he would feel like, okay, you guys work on the supernatural aspect and I'll work on the medical aspect. Because if he believes they coincide, then it would stand to reason that he would also believe that even if they fix the Nogitsune situation, the medical situation will not automatically be fixed. No, no, absolutely. Yes, I wish that had been... Verbalized. I wish that had just been the one line because it, it just feels weird to me that we know something else is actually happening and we're not really talking about it. So I will have to say this is my least favorite episode of this season, to be honest. Now, it's such an amazing season. I still feel pretty favorably about it, even as my least favorite, but the acting and directing are good. A lot of the dialogue is very good. But most of what happens in it feels forced to me from Styles' whole reason for going to Eichen House in the first place to the Stalia scenes. I don't have a problem with Styles and Lee in general, ignoring the fact that she spent so many years as like as a coyote. But I hate that they have sex right off the bat and she doesn't even really get to become a real character yet. She does eventually, of course, but it feels exploitive to have the sex scene happen before she's established as a full character. We already saw her naked when she was first introduced. Then there's the shower scene in this episode, and then it goes straight to sex. It's so unfair to her character. At the time, we didn't know for sure that she was going to become a full character. You know, she was only really contracted to be in three episodes of this season. So making her a regular and her becoming the Malia we know happened between seasons. Yeah, but that's still shitty and problematic. Okay, I'm not saying I don't care if she had been a one-off character because she's great and I liked her a lot on the show. So I very much wanted her to come back and become a full character. But in terms of how shitty it is the way she's objectified in this season, I don't care because that doesn't change it. That's true. She's a great character and this feels like a disservice to that great character, to the great character but she becomes later on. We hadn't developed her character fully yet. You know, characters don't pop into stories fully formed. They grow over time. Yeah, but I'm not talking about that kind of change. This would be like if the styles we saw in the pilot was a completely different person than who we see in a later season. She's saying it's fundamentally out of character. Yes, thank you. That's the thing. We didn't know for sure that she was going to come back in a later season. It wasn't until we knew we were getting her back for season four that we actually broke down who that character was going to be. Well, that just sounds like you guys didn't care enough about the character at this point in the story to figure out who this person was. Fine, you didn't know she was going to be a regular, but surely a character that's important for three episodes deserves to have a general personality figured out. It wasn't like we hadn't thought about it at all. We thought about it enough for what we need for Styles' story. That's the problem. Yeah, the writers figured out enough for Styles to get laid, and that's f***ed up. I don't disagree. I don't like the sex scene. I think it's bad writing, but all I can say is we didn't know what she was going to become. I don't think it's completely fair to compare her in this episode to the character we developed later because we didn't know for sure if there was going to be a later. Well, I think it's unfair to the audience to introduce a female character that you haven't given much thought to as her own person. It's not that we didn't give any thought to her character. It's just that it's hard when you're halfway through a season and you genuinely don't have time to sit down and break every single character for every episode. Okay, let's put it simply. Why does Styles have sex with Malia? I don't know. I don't like any of that. I'm not saying I do. But you are saying it isn't completely fair for the audience to say she doesn't feel like a real character, like the character we get to know later. She feels like someone who is there to have sex with Styles. I don't really know how to articulate what I want to say here. I mean, I, I think you're clear. The writers didn't have the time to develop her fully as a character at this point. To me, the problem isn't necessarily even that she isn't a fully formed character yet. After all, this is only the third episode with her being on the show. The problem, though, is that when sex is involved, you have to take care. It's a complicated and delicate subject for so many people, especially women in our society. And I get it. She's only a partially formed character at this point. That's fine. But then 
don't use her character for sex. That's the bottom line. I'm sure MTV was like, just have everybody fuck everybody. It'll be awesome. But the reality is when sex is involved, it's easy to do something problematic. Sex is problematic for so many people. Even if Malia were only in this episode, it's not a good idea to write this plot line without putting thought into why would they do this? Why would she do this? Not just why does it work for the story, but why would she do this? Like, I'm not saying this is a problem just because she's a girl, but look, that is part of it. Because like it or not, there's a long, long history of introducing women for a hot second so they can f*** somebody who matters more to the writers and then disappear forever. And this episode in particular has a content warning at the beginning. You're writing about complicated subjects here, not just sex and intimacy, but self-harm and suicide. Mental illness, abuse, manipulation... Right. You're depicting young people in an extremely vulnerable position. Styles sees someone commit suicide. He's being told he might be killed. Lee and Styles are both dealing with a lot of guilt over people's deaths. And then they're f***ing in the basement of a men's whole hospital. Some things just have to be handled with more care. I agree. We did not do all the things we should have done. Speaking of female characters who come back later, we get the introduction of Meredith in this episode. So in her scene, Meredith says, no, no, I think you're wrong. I really think I should tell them. They're going to want to know the story, the whole story. I really think they should know. Yes, I do. One of them is standing right behind me. So do y'all think she thinks she's talking to Peter? I don't. When she says story, I thought the story of the Nagitsune, how the Nagitsune was actually created. So she knows that story? I do not know because I don't remember what happens in the rest of the season. Oh. <laughs> so I I don't know. I don't think she's talking about Peter because I don't think the benefactor, I don't think that was even a, a thing that we yeah, were I, talking about I, yet. So I assumed that that was not something that had been figured out yet by the writers because I know that MTV had y'all on such a tight schedule. I'm saying from more of a death of the author kind of way, having seen more of it, more of the show than had aired at this point, do we think it's plausible that she thinks she's talking to Peter? I don't think she thinks she's talking to Peter, but I do think she's talking about Peter. I could see that too. Like the story, the whole story is about him. I don't know who she would be telling, but I think she's saying the whole story is about him. Should she tell the gang? Okay. It's possible. I mean, it does make sense to say one of them is right behind me if she's talking about people who would go on the list because they're supernaturals. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. Styles is a supernatural right now. Right. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting idea that because she keeps what she's saying fairly vague, to me, it seems plausible that what she's talking about is the benefactor plotline that we get later. Yeah, you guys should just own this as a really I, good I, I wish that's what it was. God, I wish <laughs> that's what it was. Because if she had said, if she had just said, I could, I could tell one of them, one of, you know, like someone on the list, one of them is right behind me. And that was it. That would have been so f- badass if we had known but again what you said is absolutely true because between 3a and 3b i mean jeff talked about it he was like hey we're going on vacation and mtv was like how about no do not stop making this tv show how about that instead you know so it was just like we have no time to even think about what's going to be the next season and all that but that would have been dopey (laughs) shit if we had laid in one hint towards the benefactor story for the next season, that just would have been fucking great. Yeah. I just imagine like Jeff standing there with like one of those blow up tubes and like his vacation floppy hat on. <laughs> and he's ready yeah. to, go to the beach and MTV walks in the like, no, MTV, bro. the person. The person, MTV. Yeah, Mr. Mr. MTV. MTV. <laughs> 
But actually, Will, if you think about it, it, even if this had been planned, I don't think Meredith would have said on the list. Because it didn't Because you wouldn't want to, well, no, I was going to say, you wouldn't want to tip your hand that she actually is the benefactor. No, that's true. But had there been something, because like nobody, she could have said literally anything here and none of it would have made sense because it's completely out of context. But had there been something she could have said that then a year later, when you're watching the next season, just be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They actually put this in. And I'm yeah. I'm trying to give y'all this is what I'm trying well, to thank do. You. Yes, because, we, yes, that's exactly what we were doing. Because yes. I feel like there's one of them right behind me is the part of it that's the most specific. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like most of what she's saying is just, we should tell them with no indication of who them refers to, blah, blah, blah. But when she says one of them standing right behind me, that's where it gets specific because we know that that means styles yeah and styles is a supernatural right now so i feel like it does make sense to me that that could be her talking about the deadpool yeah because by them she means the people on the on the list on the list and yeah, yeah yeah what she's thinking is they need to know why we're doing this because when we get kind of the villain monologue if you will we're getting her kind of regurgitating peter's perspective of why this has to be done yeah and so you could think of it that way oh we just need to explain to them so they know that we're not just doing this arbitrarily there's a plan and this has to be done yeah they're gonna want to know that full story yeah so that they're not just feeling like why are you doing this yeah and one of them one of the people on the list is standing right behind me right now yeah, no, that would have been totally fun. And then Meredith hangs up the phone and turns around and bumps in to Styles. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. And then she looks at Olive and she goes, hey, Greenberg, and keeps walking. <laughs> and then Styles is like, what? You're Greenberg? What? You're Oliver Greenberg? He's like, yeah, man, why didn't you ask? <laughs> so did, did y'all know that Meredith was a banshee? I don't think so. At this point. Okay. I don't Because I, I was so. going to say, like, again, to give you guys credit that apparently was not totally deserved because it was not totally planned. I feel like this makes perfect sense for a banshee because think about when Lydia thought she heard Styles talking over the radio. Yeah. Like sometimes the messages they get seem from their perspective to be delivered by some device. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, that's, yeah. I guess, kind of their brain trying to rationalize what they're hearing. So it makes perfect sense to me that as a banshee, she can actually hear someone. Yeah. Yeah. She's having a conversation or whatever. But yeah. No, I, and, I like that idea that the supernatural thing, but their yeah. brain is trying to make sense of what's happening because the brain's like this doesn't work this isn't correct but it's right. twisting itself so it's like oh it's the radio or it's a cd player or it's a payphone that's that's interesting like i yeah. wish that is something we could have carried on with the banshees that it was always that you know and that's so that's interesting because that's science mixing with supernatural and all that so that's that's cool. cool ideas sometimes no that's that's really f- cool so yeah back in like the 1800s a banshee would have just heard like beep 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 beep, beep the morse code of uh- <laughs> of western like of western Union or whatever. i mean that would actually be dope as f- like yeah, i would, would be. straight up watch that movie about an 1800s banshee yeah no that'd be great also hey in this episode we have our introduction to berserkers granted ours are quite different when we actually get them but it's still cool that they're introduced here so can i assume based on the trend in this conversation that that was also not planned at this point i i think we were just talking about berserkers and then Mm -hmm. you know because because you know because like the the berserkers that that chris talks about are like the normal in quotes berserkers you get in folklore 
and all that. And then of course, you know, when we do something, we're like, well, what's our version of it? And, you know, and it's like, well, berserkers are very, or at least, you know, like they're like in this, they're, they're Germanic or whatever, but they're always in that part of the world. And it's like, and the bearskins is always the kind of thing, but then taking it for us where we use bones instead of hide right. the, the bones of animals and stuff. The bone part. But I was going to say, it's not really all that traditional. Like what Derek brings up is traditional, yeah. but then Chris is like, yeah, traditionally that's the case. But I had this situation of a teenage boy here in the United States that became a berserker. So clearly it's not just germanic warriors even or, when it's discussed yeah. at this point in the story yeah no and i do like that when we do our berserkers they're kind of like haitian voodoo zombies you don't get bitten by a berserker and you're a berserker it's like we you make a berserker mm-hmm. like you turn someone into the thing like how like haitian voodoo zombies like you take a person and you turn them into that form of a zombie and mm-hmm. so that i think is interesting where it's like and you know i feel like that's a fun twist on it where you're basically just frankensteining somebody who's actually alive instead of dead and yeah. turning them into something else that's actually i i want to say the armenian werewolf myth uh-huh. is similar to that where someone puts on a, a wolf pelt mm. and becomes a werewolf it's fun so there was a document that has Styles' story, and it said that the Styles can feel the naked snake creeping back into his mind, fighting for control. The naked snake has been here before. It has a connection to Eichenhaus. Morel says that he needs to know his enemy if he's going to defeat it. There was the question of what is the naked snake's connection to Eichenhaus? Pharaoh is comatose, half his skin burned off, but he's more awake than the doctors think. He escapes from his cell with the intention of helping the naked snake return. Takes Styles to an operating theater with an old ECT machine and starts zapping styles, making the good state more powerful. Now that I think is really interesting because I just assumed Pharaoh had died. Yeah. But I did too. Yeah. He was still on a mission there. Malia shows up to rescue him, but she's too late. Styles has flatlined. Pharaoh turns his attention to Malia and attacks her. She's losing. Pharaoh is going to kill her. Styles and Boyd Styles watch from the balcony out of body experience. There's also a document about scenes we'd like to see. Will, since you're the one who probably wrote this document, would you like to? Yeah, so I'm sure this is probably in our blue sky phase when we're just throwing everything against the wall and seeing what what sticks. You know, we talk about like uh, Styles having a Nogitsune nightmare, something maybe involving a Nematon echoing, you know, episode 313 anchors. And then maybe there's like a scene in the Ikenhouse common room where, you know, Styles is taking in Ikenhouse for the first time, seeing patients, guy eating, guy eating checkers, girl rocking in a chair. Styles stops when he steps on a doll. He picks it up and it's familiar. Wham! Malia tackles him, grabs the doll. That's mine. Then a voice rings out. That's enough, Miss Tate. It's Morel in a doctor's coat. Welcome to Ikenhouse Styles. That would have been actually kind of fun. Yeah, if, I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah. Welcome to Styles. Yeah, if that had been the reintroduction to Malia. Because we've already established how like important that doll is. It's so important, I don't think we ever see it again. Yep. <laughs> so, well, yeah. I, I think it ended up working out because it kind of was like her sister's grave. So I kind of just assumed that once like she realized there was like a grave site, she took it there instead. That does I make mean, sense. I would have liked it as like something she kept, but I do think it would work that she just left it there yeah mm-hmm. i could see that like at the Eichenhaus cafeteria you know styles reaches for a cookie on a tray and malia warns him you don't want to eat that we see an inmate at another table licking cookies <laughs> he likes to put them back she hands him a candy bar real food malia got into the guards lounge and that's showing that malia can get into places uh that other patients can't and i can house somewhere outside on the i can house grounds i'm 
thinking Styles is knocked down on the path outside the building. Maybe he is freaked out by a hallucination. He's on one of the window tiles that looks into the basement. He recognizes the room as the room from his dream in 318, and he has to get into that room, but it's locked, and Malia can get him in because we would have already established that she can get into places that other people can't. It seems like you guys had really wanted to do the cookie thing. I know that was like eventually got dropped, but there was, I think more than one of the drafts had the cookie joke in there. Oh, all right. It also seemed like, you know, Jeff was pretty committed from early on to the sex happening. And I'm not sure why. Styles runs up to Scott in a panic at the high school. I don't know what's happened or how I got out. You have to take me back. Scott doesn't know Styles. You're Miss Delitsky's son, right? What? Styles says. Styles? He turns and sees his mom. Why aren't you dressed? Styles runs to his mom. She pulls him into the classroom. You seem really upset. I just haven't seen you in so long. He hugs her. But I'm always with you, Styles. Styles looks up and Claudia is now the nicotine. Damn, that would have been brutal. Yeah, I think it would have been cool to have a scene like that where Styles is dreaming of his mom, but he's the age he was when she died. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Like a kid, yeah. I would have liked to see little Styles. That's funny. Have they mentioned somehow that she's a teacher? Because it seems like she's a teacher here. And then my head can was always that she was a teacher. I do not know the answer to that question. In the high school, Styles walks through the empty corridor, hearing sounds, a struggle coming through the double doors. Then a Gitsune appears at his side. Don't go in there, Styles. Don't go through that door. Styles reluctantly pushes through the double doors and sees the Oni slicing through all of his friends. Stolinsky, Melissa, Scott, Allison, Lydia, Derek, the twins. And then he's like, ah, I don't care about the twins. Uh, <laughs> Take Styles, them, it's not my business. <laughs> Styles tries to stop the massacre, but can't. Then Agitsune appears and stops the Oni, looking like a savior. Let me in, and I can stop this from happening. Let me in. Slap! Styles wakes up to Malia slapping him. So this is basically an Age of Ultron scene, is what you're telling me. Yeah, Which yeah. Scott also has an Age of Ultron thing. Oh, yeah. Also in the high school, Styles wanders down the corridor and sees the grating from Eichenhaus in the floor. He looks and sees the Oni killing his friends. Styles rushes down to the basement, tries to stop the massacre, but can't. Oh, it's the same thing. <laughs> This idea is a callback to Styles closing the open door from 313. He opens the door and finds something terrible. Styles passes through multiple doors, seeing worse and worse things. The Nagitsune is conditioning Styles not to go through doors. You shouldn't have opened the door, Styles. Styles wakes up and sees the door to the quiet room open and Malia slapping him. Does Styles find his mother tied up somewhere? She has bandages on her head from a failed brain surgery. Does Malia have to convince Styles to go through the door when the time comes? The Nogitsune tells Styles not to go through the door, and when he does, he finds the horrible thing. What if Styles sees his father hang himself from all of his failures? Oh my what God. the f? Finds Stolinsky setting up the rope, jumping, and can't stop his dad. Holy shit, you guys. Damn. I don't know if you could tell from my reaction, but this is my first time reading this, and I'm shocked. <laughs> yes, shook it. We have it. Final one. So Styles wakes up from a nightmare. Lydia's in bed with him like the opening of 313. Styles sees the closed door, perhaps with the self kanji scrawled on it. I have to open it. Lydia asks him to stay in bed, but Styles gets up to close the door. I have to open it. Styles opens the door and sees all of his friends dead atop the Dipaton. And Oni pulls a sword out of Lydia. Why did you have to open the door? Lydia asks. Interesting. A lot of age of Ultron. Wait, Styles, Styles gets up to close the door? To open the door. Because the, then it gets and he wants to be let in. Okay, so he has I'm to, but I'm saying it says Styles gets up to close the door. 
I can't be uh, oh. held responsible for Will's yeah. earlier yeah. mistakes. If, if there are any mistakes <laughs> in there, it's it's gonna be my fault because I'm the one who is who is typing this like super fast. I'm really good at real time transcribing, so oh. tell your friends. Yeah. <laughs> I was essentially that gift from uh, Bruce Almighty, where he's answering all the prayer emails. Yeah. <laughs> that was me, and it was awful. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, I'm really good at it. I will tell my friends. Hey, Calissa. Tell your friends. Mm-hmm. Kate's really good at live. You told me to tell my friends. She, y'all are the only friends I've got. Friends with power. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> hey, y'all are the ones you're always saying. Y'all are the only friends I need. I don't think I This is more that. Calissa. Okay. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hill. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 3, Episode 21, The Fox and the Wolf. My favorite episode of the entire series, yay! Whoa, that's high praise. It is. It's got my two favorite things. World War II and more world war ii so one favorite thing it's good god okay (laughs) rate and review us on itunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness five star reviews get a shout out have a great week and we'll see you again soon on return to beacon hills dude it's beacon hills